we thank God for a good service and for the singing, the testimonies, and for God's goodness to each and every one of us. I'm happy to be back here again this morning, and I trust that what I have on my heart will be of a blessing to, well, to each of you, but to some in particular, that God will give us understanding. What I'm going to be preaching about this morning takes a little bit of thought, so you're going to have to think as well as listen. You know, sometimes all we do is just sit and listen, but to be able to understand what some of the things I'm going to say, you're going to have to think with me as well as listen. And I just pray that God will bless and help each and every one of us. Father, to thee we come with a thankful heart. We prepared ourselves as best as we can through prayer and asking for your help and also studying and meditating on these things. And now I pray that thou will guide and direct me and give me wisdom this morning. Most of all, I pray that something that I say will be of a benefit to someone that's here. We ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. I've entitled my lesson this morning, Is It Possible for a Christian to Live Without Committing Sin? Is it possible for a Christian to live without committing sin? Now, this is a question of debate. I think almost all of us in this uh, audience this morning knows that. It's a question of debate. It's an old question. Uh, it's uh, one that almost goes back to the beginning of Christianity, at least back to the first century. And it's a question of debate even among sincere Christians. Now, by sincere Christians, I mean Christians, true Christians, who desire to please the Lord. There's some that believe that you can and some that believe that you can't. And they're sincere Christians on both sides of that. They're people, my friend, that, that really desire to serve God, but they, they believe they can't refrain or can't keep from sinning. And I'll get into a little bit of that later on. As I started to say, I intend to reason with you from the scriptures concerning this question. Now, I am under no delusion to believe that I'm going to satisfy uh, what I have to say is going to satisfy everybody that hears me or that I'm going to end this debate once and for all. I'm under no delusion to believe that I, I'm capable of doing that. But I do have a few thoughts on my heart. I have a few things I do want to talk to you about and uh, I hope that that these considerations will guide us to the truth. I pray that God will help me to rightly divide the word of truth. You know, different people can read the same Bible and actually sometimes the same passage and uh, come up with different ideas. I think you already know that. But the Bible teaches us that we need to ask God and seek the Lord so that we may rightly divide his word. And the way he told us to do that was by diligent search. And I've, I've done that. And I 
I just wanted to encourage you to think along with me this morning. Now, my first point is that every person who truly loves God does not intend to ever sin. I'm going to repeat that. Every person that truly loves God does not intend to ever sin. Even, even sincere Christians that believe you can't live without committing sin, they, my friend, do not intend to sin. If they truly love God, if they truly love the Lord, they would not intend to ever sin again. Let's study a few passages that bring that thought out. In John's Gospel, the 14th chapter and the 15th verse said, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, in this passage, Jesus is making a request. He's making a request of his disciples. He's saying that if you love me, show it by keeping my commandments. Now, Jesus meant something by that statement. Jesus meant something by that request. Words, words have meaning. Words mean things. And the question is, what did he mean? What did he mean when he said, if you love me, keep my commandments? Did he know that he was requiring something that's impossible? Or did Jesus really require and expect us to keep his commandments? I believe, as John Wesley said, don't stray very far from the plain meaning of the Scripture. If, if you give it to a, a, a teenager and ask him to read it and then tell you what it means, the logical, plain meaning of it is the, well, almost always is the truth. But did Jesus require something impossible here of his disciples? The truth is that Jesus knew that if a person truly loved him, then that person would intend to please him by obedience. Now somebody said, why did Jesus know that? Because that is the very nature of love. The very nature of love, my friend, is to please the one that you love. And uh, that I could illustrate that in many different ways between husbands and wives and parents and children and so on. But if it's the very nature of love that if a person truly loves, then they intend to please him. And in this case, we intend to please Jesus by obedience. And then John's gospel again, the same 14th chapter and the 23rd verse, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now, in, in this verse, Jesus is not making a request. In the first verse I led, he said, If you love me, Keep my commandments. In this verse, he's making a statement. He's saying here that if a man loves me, he will keep my word. And that's a statement. It's not a simple 
It's not a request. He's not asking uh, those who love him to keep his commandments here, but he's simply stating that if that a person that does love him will keep his commandments. And again, it's because that's the very nature of love. It's the it's the way it's the way that it is. And Jesus, my friend, was saying that our obedience throws from our love for him. In 1 John's gospel, in the second chapter, in the fifth verse, he said, But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Now again, he's, he's connecting loving God with obeying God. And he's saying here that anyone who obeys God's word shows that he truly loves God. In fact, his love is perfected. His love is, is completed. His love is made perfect. And that simply means it is, brought, it is brought to its natural end, to its intended end. And if you love him, you will keep his commandments. And then he states that this is one of the greatest proofs that we know that we are in Christ. Hereby know we that, are we that we are in him. This loving God and obeying God, my friend, is one of the greatest proofs that you are in Christ. So John is defining love for God here in terms of obedience to the word of God. Again in 1 John, in the 5th chapter, in the 3rd verse, for this is the love of God. He's defining love here. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous, and that means burdensome. It's not, it's not a burden. You know, when you love somebody, you, you ever seen that picture? They, it's, I think it's a trademark of a boy's town. But there's a, there's a teenage boy with a younger boy on his back. And, and he's saying, he's not heavy, he's my brother. And that again is showing, my friend, that John is showing here the uh, nature of love that we, when we love the Lord, it's not a grievous thing for us to obey him. It's not something, my friend, that's a burden. It's not something that is burdensome to us, but it's something we delight in. It's something we want to do. And as I started out, my, my point is this, that every person who truly loves God does not, ever intend to sin again. You can't. You can't. You cannot, my friend, because of the power of love. And you can never intend to ever, well, when you get saved, I remember the day I got saved, but my, even though I believed a life of holiness would be an impossible thing, I still made a commitment to live my life for the Lord. But that's the very nature of this. And he adds, I say again, that 
God's commandments are not grievous. You know, John defines love for God in terms of obeying his commandments. One more passage out of 1 John. This is the third chapter, the 8th through the, through the 10th verse. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifested, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. John is again writing, these, these passages mean something. They have some meaning. God's trying to say, the Bible said that we ought to live by every word of God. And these words of God are saying something to us. And the question is, what are they saying to us? First of all, he says that uh, if we continue to live in sin, uh, we're of the devil. That means we're in, in league with the devil. He's talking about someone, my friend, that professing to be a Christian and yet uh, habitually continues to live in sin. You can't do that and be a true child of God. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The work of, this, of Satan making us and bringing us to a place of being slaves to sin. Christ appeared to destroy that devil's work. By the way, and I'll just say this, but in the New Testament, Christians are often called saints. And the plain meaning of the word saints is the holy one. The holy ones. No one that is born of God will continue to sin, he said. In fact, he said here, his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That does not mean that in its absolute sense. We know that. Because if it meant it in its absolute sense, it would mean that we cease to be free moral agents. And we know that's not true. What did he mean here? that he cannot sin. I believe he meant something to, like in, in the life of, of Joseph. Joseph, he, I won't go into the story, but he was very briefly sold into slavery. He was bought by a, a, uh, a Roman military officer. And then Joseph uh, went, went from the ranks of a slave up to the manager of the man's estate. While he was away, probably on military uh, business, his wife tried to get Joseph to commit adultery. And Joseph, when, when she grabbed him one time, he, he avoided going into the house, but one time business required that he did, and she grabbed him. And, uh, and, and, and told him, said, lie with me. And he said, how can I do this? Now, what did he mean by how can I do this? I, I can't do this. 
Did he mean that physically he couldn't or, or that it was an impossibility? No. What he meant was his loyalty to his master, first of all, and then he said, my master has, has left everything in my control except you. I mean, I have rule over all of his estate. And he said, I can't do that because of my loyalty to him. Second of all, he said, how can I sin against God? It was his commitment to God. And by the way, this is an Old Testament uh, character. It's not a born-again Christian, but an Old Testament character. But he loved God. And that love made it impossible in a moral sense. He couldn't do it because he didn't want to do it. And that's the thing, my friend. When you truly love God, you can't do it because you don't want to do it. You do not want to do it. You never want to displease God. You cannot go on sinning. Because we've been born of God, it says. And this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Those who continue to live in sin are of the devil. And it, it means, my friend, habitual, voluntary sin. You cannot live in habitual, voluntary sin and be a child of God. It's, it's a, and if you claim that you are, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're not telling the truth because that is not true, my friend. You cannot habitually continue to live in sin and be a child. In fact, he says there in this, in whether you sin or not, in this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. And whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God. Now, the way to distinguish between children of God and the children of the devil is whether or not they continue to live in sin. These are, all of these passages come from one writer, and that's John. And I, I stayed with him because he's consistent throughout his writings. Some of the things that that I meditated on as I read those passages, and I repeat this, these passages mean something. They're not meaningless. These passages contain a message from God. It's, it's His Word. And the question is, what is God saying to us? What is God saying to us in these passages that I read? The most logical meaning of these words, my friend, is that a Christian who truly loves God will never intend to continue in sin. I, I don't see how you can come to any other conclusion than God is saying, my friend, that a person, a person who truly loves him will not intend to continue in sin. Suppose for a minute that a Christian 
cannot live without committing sin. Let's just suppose for a minute that that's true. That a Christian cannot live without committing sin. If he truly loves God, he would still strive to never commit sin. That has to be true. That has to be true. Because that's the nature of loving God. I repeat it. Suppose that a Christian cannot live without committing sin. If he truly loved God, he would still be striving never to commit sin in his life. If a Christian does commit sin after he is saved, he would become brokenhearted because he desires and intends never to commit sin. Sin would not be a matter of so what. It would be something, my friend, that broke his heart. Right? It's something, if you truly love somebody and do something that hurts them, it is going to trouble you. It is going to trouble you. I was going to save this story later, but I'm going to tell it right now because it brings out what I'm trying to say here. You will not excuse yourself simply by saying that I cannot live without committing sin. You would be brokenhearted and you would, you would want to correct it. You'd want to do what you could to make it right if you truly love God. Recently, I I done a very stupid thing, and I'll not go into all the details, but I done a very stupid thing, and the results of that action was that Sister Yoder has permanently lost some of her hearing. I did, I certainly did not intend that. My intention is to never hurt her. I love her, and I would never intentionally, in fact, I would never intend, but I've done something that is very stupid, and the results of that action was that Sister Yoder has permanently lost her hearing. It's, it's, it's distorted the little hair fiber, you know, that pick up the, the nerve endings that pick up the sounds in your, your cornea or whatever that's called. Uh, that thing looks like a snail in your ear. But those, the ends of those things were broken off, and they don't never grow back, never. She tried hearing aids, but that didn't, that doesn't solve her problem. Do you think I just shrugged my shoulder and said, well, it was a mistake. It was an accident. You know, accidents happen. Do you think that was my attitude? I was broken hearted and still am. It was unintentional. I never intended to do it. But it, it happened. 
And I'm telling you, my friend, that, that if a Christian commits sin after that he's saved, he would be brokenhearted. And the reason why he'd be brokenhearted is because he wants to please God. He has a desire, and his intentions are to never displease him. That has to be true for it to be true love. But I believe the Scriptures are saying more than that. And, of course, in these passages, I believe that the Scriptures is teaching us that a person who truly loves God will not continue in sin. But if he does, but if he does sin after he's saved, he'll experience brokenhearted repentance. Repentance is never so bitter as in the life of a Christian that fails God. When you have failed the Lord, it tears you up. It, it affects your relationship with God. It affects your prayer life. The Bible teaches us that. It troubles your conscience. And it, it makes so that, well, you can't find peace except, my friend, in brokenhearted repentance. Amen? Anyone who habitually sins and does not feel brokenhearted over it does not love God. It's proof that they're not a true child of God. And I'm repeating, but even if it were true that a Christian could not live without committing sin, he wouldn't quit fighting against it and simply accept it as a matter of course. Not if he loved God. He would fight it and never want to repeat it. Now, John, in his gospel, does speak about the possibility of a Christian committing sin. In the second chapter of John's gospel, the first five verses, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. God, John's purpose in writing unto them was so that they would not sin. And if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Now John's saying here that his purpose in writing to the people, his entire purpose was so that they would not continue in sin. But he knew there was a possibility that a Christian might sin. And he says, but if. But if, now, if sin was an avoidable thing, he would have said, when. But if is conditional. 
If is a word of condition. And he's saying, if a man sins. And he's talking here, of course, about a Christian because he goes on and says that Jesus' death atones for our sins and not for ours only, meaning a Christian, ours, but for the sins of the whole world. If a Christian does sin, we have an advocate that will plead our case. We can find forgiveness. We can find the remedy for a Christian who sins is to find a place of repentance. And repentance is not only being sorry, but it's turning away from it and asking God to forgive us for our failure. John said, we know that we've come to know him because we keep his commandments. We know that. That's how we know we've, we've come to know God. And whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. He's not telling the truth. But anyone who obeys God's word, love for God is truly made perfect in him. This passage introduces the possibility that a Christian may commit sin. And the remedy, my friend, is to ask God to forgive you and to renew your commitment. A renewed consecration is needed many times when a Christian has failed God, when a Christian has committed sin. A renewed consecration is necessary to give him strength to overcome that and to live for the Lord. Amen? Well, amen. The second point that I want to make is this. Now listen to me. Listen. That the root problem concerning this question among sincere Christians, and I've already told you what I mean by sincere Christian. Somebody who loves God and does not want to commit sin. The root cause, my friend, or the root problem concerning this question is that people define sin in different terms. And this brings me to a discussion of what is sin. You know, and and actually, you never come in agreement on a question unless you come to an agreement of what the question means. And there's where we find ourselves many, many times. We're not in agreement on what the question actually means. I believe that before any act can be sin, can be called an accountable sin, it must be willful, voluntary, known transgression of God's law. Accountable sin is a sin that you're accountable of. There's other sins you're not accountable of. That's sins of ignorance, unknown sins, things that at the time you committed them, uh, you had no idea that you were doing something that was wrong, that's a sin of ignorance. You were ignorant of, of the what God was requiring of you at that time. But a willful, voluntary, known transgression means that you chose to do it, 
You knew it was wrong, but you chose it anyhow, and that is accountable sin before God. Romans in the 4th chapter, 15 verse said, because the law, now listen here, this is sometimes a little difficult to understand, but because the law worketh wrath, and the wrath that it's talking about here is God's wrath. The law works God's wrath. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Now, the reason that the law of God stirs up God's wrath is because the law simply, my friend, declares what is right and wrong and requires obedience. The law tells us what is right and what is wrong, and then it also demands obedience. But the law does not give us any power to obey. And because of that, it works God's wrath. Some have said, how? When a person understands right and wrong and disobeys, it puts him in a place of being liable to the wrath of God. A person becomes liable to the wrath of God when he comes to know the difference between right and wrong through the law of God, through a knowledge of God's moral law, and then he disobeys it. And that's what Paul is saying here, that the law works wrath. The law in us, uh, he, he tells us in another place, he said, I was alive once without the law. When the law came, and it means when the law came to his understanding, he died and sin revived. And he said, I had not known that, that uh, covetousness was wrong except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Or lust, I think is what he said. But it's telling us, my friend, that we become liable of the wrath of God when we have a knowledge of God's law. And then he makes this statement, for where no law is, there's no transgression. Knowledge of God's moral law is required for the act to be an accountable, accountable sin. Accountable sin. You have to know what is right and what is wrong. Now, Jesus said something similar in John's Gospel, the ninth chapter and 41st verse, when he said, if you were blind, you should have no sin. What he meant was, if they were totally blind of what God's will is, they'd have no sin. Where there, where there, is, no, where there is no law, there's no transgression. People don't know. Right from wrong is what he's saying. Now, you may ask the question, well, what about people that do not have a knowledge of the Scripture? Are they accountable for their sins? Well, Paul covers that question back in Romans and turn there to the second chapter of Romans, verse number 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. Now, the context of this is Paul's talking about the final judgment when we all stand before God. 
And he's saying there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many that have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, and he means people that uh, don't know God by that term Gentiles, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, and their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the means while accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Paul's talking about how people's going to be judged in the final judgment. And he's saying that those that, that have the scriptural knowledge of God's law are going to be judged by that scriptural knowledge. Those who don't have that scriptural knowledge are still going to be judged, but by a different standard. A different standard. And he's telling us here what that is. Uh, he's telling us all who sin, apart from the revealed scriptural moral law of God, will also perish apart from the law because they're judged by a different standard. They will perish forever, even though they do not have the written scriptures. Right? Those who sin under the knowledge of God's moral law will be judged by that law. But people who do not have scriptural knowledge of God's law are judged by another law, the inbred natural moral law of God. This law requires them to do by nature the things required in the scriptural law. Even though they do not have access to God's written law, there's something written in the conscience and on the hearts of men. He said their own hearts and conscience become their judge. Sometimes the conscience accuses them, other times it defends them. And these, Paul said, are the standards that are going to be applied in the final judgment when Christ returns and the secret of men's heart are revealed. People who do not know the scriptures are judged by a different standard, but the same element of known voluntary disobedience applies. The difference is the standard by which they're judged. Those that have, like you and I, we have God's written revelation. His scriptural moral law. And whatever knowledge we have of that is our standard of judgment. Whatever understanding we have of God's moral law through teaching, through reading, through various means that God has, we're judged then by the standard of the scriptures. Now, there's people that have never read the Bible, never, never heard a sermon, 
I mean, there, there's people that are totally illiterate concerning the Bible. Do they have any accountable sin? Yes. They have accountable sin, but it's a different standard. Their own conscience, their own, my friend, heart, as it said, that the law of God is written in their hearts. The, the requirements of God's law are written on the, that's why I called it the inbred natural law of God. But it's written. People know that lying, cheating, and, and uh, adultery, and all kinds of these, that these things are wrong. They, you know, somebody said, how, how, do, how do people find out that sin is something that's wrong? By, by having someone sin against them, then you know the hurt that it brings. Somebody lies on you, that, that'll show you that lying is not a right thing, right? Somebody steals from you. But there's people, it's developed in their conscience and their own conscience, their own heart is the standard by which they are judged. And they can be excused or accused. And it said, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men's hearts. I said all that to say this. When we're talking about living without committing sin, we're talking about known intentional sin. Recently, I listened to Billy Graham preach a sermon in which he said that everybody sins. And by that he meant both believers and unbelievers. Everybody sins. And then he said that there are sins of omission. That's things that you should have done but you didn't do. And then there's sins of commission. That's things that you shouldn't have done that you did do. And then he further added that anything that would displease God, whether it is known or unknown, is sin. Now, if this is the true definition of sin, that anything that would displease God, whether you know it or not, if that's the true definition of sin, then I would agree nobody can live without committing sin. Because that would require perfect knowledge, and none of us have that. None of us have that. Nobody. Nobody. Most of us don't even come close. But none of us have perfect knowledge. Perfect knowledge of God's will. Unknown sins are sins of ignorance. By that I mean you did not know it was wrong at the time that you'd done it. It was a sin of ignorance. You didn't know. Uh, it can be because that you did not understand the full scope of the commandments of God. And later on, your understanding of the full scope of God's commandments showed you that what you had done was not the right thing. It wasn't the thing that you should have said. It wasn't the thing that you should have done. And that's a sin 
of ignorance. You didn't know that it was wrong at the time you committed it. Unknown sins also can be committed from a want of consideration. You did not think very deeply before you acted, you know. You, you just, you, and then later on, you, you think more deeply, you, you meditate on it and say, oh my, I've done, I done something that is wrong. But that, those are unknown sins. Unknown sins are things that come to light sometime after that you have committed the act. Now, a known willful transgression is something at the time you do it, you know it was wrong, and you willfully, deliberately chose to do it. That's a known voluntary sin. An unknown sin or sin of ignorance, my friend, is that at the time you'd done it, you, you didn't know. You know, I've asked this question. I'm going to ask it again. I think I'll probably ask it here in this congregation. But I've asked it at, at, in revivals, at, at uh, camp meetings, and in congregations. I've asked this. I said, is there anyone here that has been saved for at least one year that you've never had to ask God to forgive you for something you said or done? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. And, I, and of the th few thousands of people I asked that question, there was not one hand raised. Now, what's that show me? That shows me, my friend, that we have a problem with sin. Sometimes it's sin in the sense that I've said, voluntary, you know? You've done it, you're sorry you've done it, you asked God to forgive you, you was reinstated in fellowship with God. There's other times that you didn't know at the time you'd done it, and then after, after thinking about it or, or getting greater understanding, you said, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And sometimes in revival, sometimes in camp meeting, a preacher will bring up something, and it'll come to your mind, oh, my, I, I didn't know, I didn't realize and it, 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 it awakens you, but you still feel, even though it's an unknown thing, a sin of ignorance, you still feel that you need to ask God to forgive you. I'll not get into it. I was, but I, I felt it would take too much time this morning. But in the Old Testament, it talks about sins of ignorance. In Leviticus, if you want to look it up, you can. But in Leviticus, it talks about sins of ignorance. But sins of ignorance required a blood sacrifice once that sin was known. Now, what's that teach me through the Old Testament? types and It teaches me that as a Christian, that even though it's an unknown sin, an unintentional thing, I did not intend at all to do something wrong. But later on, I found out it was wrong. And I, I seek God for forgiveness and ask him to forgive me. 
Amen? Sins of ignorance. Well, let me say this before I go on. We normally distinguish between these two kinds of sin. We call intentional known sin deliberate disobedience to God. And we call unintentional sins mistakes and errors. Now suppose we, we thought different. Now I'm saying that you and I, we, we call intentional sins, you know, deliberate disobedience, but unintentional sins, we call them mistakes and errors. Suppose you were of the Christians who believe that that's sin. Well, then you would not believe that you could live without committing sin. <laughs> and many times, it's a lack of understanding of this distinction, my friend, that sincere people, sincere people, I'm talking about people who really love the Lord, but they believe that anything that displeases God, whether it's known or unknown. You know, I have, we have some Baptists in our family, uh, in, you know, in, not in my immediate family, but in our family, in the, in the extended family. And whenever we visit with them and they say grace or they pray, and, and I believe there are people that are sincere, the ones I'm talking about now, but they always end their prayer and forgive us of our sins. You know why they do that? Because they believe, my friend, that there may be something that's displeasing to God that they don't know nothing about, and they won't make sure it's taken care of. I believe that's an error. I believe that we ought to take care of unknown sins and sins of ignorance, but later when they come to light, these sins of ignorance are committed inadvertently, un unintentionally. But when they come to light, it still requires that we ask God to forgive us, seek his forgiveness. Once we discover that it's displeasing to God, we'll want to do that. Because we don't want nothing between, nothing between me and the Savior. Amen? Now listen, listen to me. When we talk about living without committing sin, we're not talking about living a life free from unintentional sins of ignorance. Sometimes people think that when we talk about living without committing sin, that we're talking about absolute perfection. But we're really not. We're not talking about living a life free from unintentional sins of ignorance. Because nobody can live that way. I mean, we, I mean, it's obvious. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about, my friend, is known sin. Known voluntary sin. Sins, my friend, that we knew at the time we'd done it that it was wrong. 
And I believe that the Bible teaches, my friend, that a Christian can live without committing known voluntary sin. A lack of understanding this truth about sin is at the root of much of the debate today over whether or not a Christian can live without committing sin. Sometimes our definition of sin is too narrow, but on the other side, sometimes their definition of sin is far too broad. And we can't agree on what sin is, and, and because we can't agree on what sin is, we'll never agree on the question whether a Christian can live without committing sin. Now that's, that's the problem as I see it. And again, I'm talking about sincere people. I'm not talking about people that hides behind uh, the doctrine said, uh, you know, you can't live without committing sin. And so they, they, just, they just live any old way they want to. And uh, by a short repentance every night, they ask God to forgive them. That, 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 is, that is error. And my friend, that will lead your soul to eternal damnation. Usually those who deny that a Christian can live without committing sin or those who define sin as anything that displeases God, whether it's known or unknown. As I, I just mentioned to you, I'd heard within the last two weeks, uh, I listened to various sermons sometimes by others and by people within our own circles and people outside of our circle. I want to know what, what preachers are preaching about, just to be honest with you. I like to know what people are thinking about. But as I said, that message by Billy Graham, and I'm not condemning him at all. I believe he was a sincere man that God used. But I believe he was wrong. In defining sin that anything that displeases God, whether it's known or unknown. And as I've already said, if this, if this definition of sin is correct, then I would agree you can't live without committing sin. To me, that's pretty obvious. Usually those who believe that a Christian can live without committing sin are those who define Accountable sin as a deliberate disobedient to a known commandment of God. And if this is, if this definition of sin is correct, then my friend, the Bible definitely teaches that a Christian can live without committing sin. And in fact, it, it demands that we live without committing sin. I see problems and errors on both sides of this question. Those who believe that you cannot live without committing sin have a tendency, and I'm saying this is a tendency, it's not something, my friend, that's true of everyone, but it's a tendency to not be very concerned about a pursuing a life of holiness. Why pursue something that is impossible? You know, 
And then on the other side, those who believe that you can live without committing sin have a tendency to excuse themselves when they unintentionally do something that is displeasing to God. Because they say, why ask God to forgive you for something that, you, that when you knew it, when you'd done it, you didn't know it was wrong? Both intentional and unintentional sins, my friend, require asking God to forgive us. It's the nature of love. Amen? It's the nature of love. You know, I, I plan maybe to deal more deeply with uh, some of those problems more thoroughly later on sometime. But at the present, I'm going to say this much, that whenever you discover anything that you have done is displeasing to God, whether it was known or unknown at the time you did it, if you truly love God, you'll seek his forgiveness. And the reason is because you're truly sorry when you become aware that your actions were displeasing to God. You're really sorry. I've already told you the story about Sister Yoder's loss of hearing. Uh, I can tell you this. It was absolutely unintentional on my part. Absolutely. I wish I could back up the clock and relive it, but that's impossible. I can't do that. And even though it was entirely an unintentional accident, I felt deeply sorry because I caused it. <laughs> now, I've asked her to forgive me more than once. And I've also asked God to forgive me for being so stupid and for hurting her. That is the nature of love, friend. Believe me, I'm telling you the truth. A life of holiness flows from the fountain of love. <laughs> Believe me, it flows from a fountain of love. Let me ask you in closing, do you really love God? Do you really love God? What evidence do you have of that? If you were on trial, and I ask you to prove that you really love God, what would you do? Would you say, well, I, I feel very, very strongly towards God. That's included. But I tell you, the Bible gives us visible, easy to recognize sign of who's a Christian, who's not. In fact, Jesus went so far to say, by their fruits you'll know them. Apple tree produces apples. You don't have to guess. 
You, you pick an apple, you pick, go out here and pick an apple off a tree, you don't say, I wonder if that's a pear. You know it's not. I mean, you know it. There's no guessing about it. You know it. And Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. And the passages I read to you in the Bible are so plain along this line that the difference between, one of the main difference between a child of God and a, one who is not is whether they sin or not. And I've tried to explain to you that means deliberate known sin. Do you love God? What's your conscience tell you? What does your conscience tell you? He said if our hearts condemn us, uh, then, then we can't really pray. Because if your conscience condemns you, God's greater than your conscience. He knows more about you than your conscience does. And if your conscience condemns you, then God condemns you. If you know enough, my friend, to know that what you've done is displeasing to God. Is there things in your life, is there, is there, is there any undone Restitutions. Restitution is doing what you can to make things right. Have you lied on somebody? Have you spread gossip? You know, there's some people afflicted by that. They have this tendency, they love to hear something juicy so they can tell it. Have you said things about others that is untrue and hurt them? Have you made restitution? Have you went and apologized and asked forgiveness? Have you asked God to forgive you? Have you cheated somebody in a business deal? You sold it for more than you know it was worth or you bought it for less than you know it was worth? Now, I'm not talking about business transactions, and, but yes, sometimes that. The Bible speaks about being fair and honest. Right? Right. But are there things in your life that loose ends, you know? I mean, between a husband and a wife, there can come... So many loose ends that they begin to separate. It's just things they let go and let go and let go, let go until they grow into something that should never occur. Is there loose ends between you and God? Just things that have happened that that there's there's a there's a break in your relationship. It's not like what it used to be. Now, I don't know the answer to any of those questions concerning any of you. But I ask you just in closing, 
do you truly love God? And what is your evidence that you do? Father, I thank you, dear Lord, for your word. And in some ways, this went down kind of hard. And I know I have probably introduced some new thoughts and things that people have not thought about. But these are the things, Lord, that have come to mind. I know, Heavenly Father, that I have tried to be fair and charitable towards everyone, but yet, Father, to be firm in the truth. I pray that Thou will talk to hearts. Now, You know, Lord, that this question of, of sin can really really cause harm in an individual's life and also cause harm in the life of a congregation. And I ask of you that thou, Father of heaven, would help us to deal with sin rightly, in the right way. Help us, Lord, and we'll give you the praise for we ask it in Jesus' name and amen. <laughs>